Hey, lovelies, before we get started, I wanted to let you know that I have one of my best selling designs, the All American Dress, on pre order right now in a new light denim version. If you are not familiar with the All American Dress, it is my most perfect version of the classic denim shirt dress. It features a classic collar, flared shave, slight puff sleeve, and gold stitching details. I also included extra considerations for modesty, like an extended inner placket for coverage between and behind the buttons. It is a very cool feature that means that that you don't have to worry about buttons popping if they won't, but if they do, you're still covered inside. It's very cool. Oh, and it has pockets. You're welcome. Constructed from a soft and lightweight light blue denim, this is your year-round go-to dress for any day of the week. The pre-order will close overnight Tuesday, July 11th. If the link in the show notes still works or you see it on impactfashionnyc.com, then the pre-order is still open. Pre-ordering guarantees you get the exact size you like and creates a stress-free shopping experience with no launch day jitters. I have very limited space and stock limited inventory. So if there's something that you'd like, the best way to get your hands on it is to pre-order. Pre-orders are fully returnable and guaranteed to ship by August 21st. Get your hands on the new light denim all-American dress in sizes 2 to 28 by heading over to impactfashionnyc.com. Enjoy the show. From Impact Fashion, it's Be Impactful, a show about the women making a difference in their own corners of the world. I'm Rifki Itzquiz, and on today's show, I sit down with a fellow designer and friend to discuss her life. She shares how a major life challenge led her to leave a successful advertising agency for fashion, the difficulties with being closely associated with a strong visual identity, how dealing with her husband's medical episodes has affected their relationship. I honestly could not tell you the first time I met Mary Grunhaus. She's such a staple in the modest fashion industry who I feel like I've just always known. Whenever her and I get a chance to talk, usually over the phone, we end up in the most meaningful and wonderful of places. And I'm so glad to bring a piece of that to you. To start off, can you tell me what you were like as a little kid? Oh, rambunctious. I was <laughs> a jokester. I liked being, walking around in my um, pampers <laughs> and at the beach and touching sand. And yeah, I was, I was always out in nature, um, touching sand, touching mud, uh, playing with it, doing arts and crafts with flowers and rocks and anything that I could put my hands on. I was very much an outdoorsy kind of a little kid. Tell me, <laughs> tell me about where you, where you grew up. I'm from Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. I, w- I lived in Brazil till I was 14. And then I moved to Israel where I went for high school in an all-girls school. And then I went back to Brazil for a year. I worked with my father in his law firm, and then I came to America. So when you went to Israel for high school, were you? did you go by yourself or? Yes, I went by myself. I was 14 years old. Um, and my parents were very much trying to tell me who to hang out. And because we were Orthodox and the kids in school weren't, even though they were Jewish, but they weren't Orthodox. I couldn't eat in their homes. I couldn't go to parties. And I just told my parents it would be just a simpler thing for me to be in an environment 
with the type of kids you want me to hang out. So they finally agreed. And at age 14, I went by myself to Israel and I lived by myself for four years and I would come home only during the summers. When you say that, like you lived by yourself, like you lived in a dorm or like you lived in an apartment by yourself? I I lived in a dorm. I was in the dorm and then I would go to my sisters for the weekend or to my grandmother. But I was very much independent in the fact that I had my own bank account. My parents would deposit some money, pocket money once a month. I had to manage it by myself and everything that I needed during the week. I was I had to figure out on my own. Wow. That's a lot to take on as like a, a, a kid. 14 is still pretty little. Yeah, I matured really fast. My sisters are way older than me. Um, and uh, I guess Gen X, you know, we were allowed to fend for ourselves. You made up. a tougher stuff than us millennials. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> how, I'm so curious. How did your parents end up in Brazil? Because like I would assume, like you said, you, there weren't that many Orthodox people there. Like how did how did that happen? Right. So my grandparents, they fled from the war. They knew it was coming. They were very much, this is not looking good. We're not taking any chances. They lost everything. They left all of their belongings. And they flew first to Portugal because Portugal accepted those immigrants, but only for 30 days. And they had to get a visa somewhere and, and leave. That was only just a, a stepping stone. They got a visa to Brazil. Uh, part of the family got visas to America, but we ended up in Brazil. That's my father's side of the family. Now, my father was born in Belgium, and when he graduated from law school, his parents said, you should go back to the country where you were born. They paid a ticket for him to go there, and his first stop was the chief rabbi's house to introduce himself, and my mother was his daughter. My mother mm -hmm. was the daughter of the chief rabbi of Antwerp. They met. Um, my grandfather told my mother, why don't you show him around? And that was really their first date. And very soon after they got engaged. That's so wonderfully sweet. What? So what year was that? This must have been like way post-war. Oh, yeah, that was way post-war. My father would have been now in his late 80s. So he graduated from law school. He was in his mid to late 20s. So we're talking 60 years ago. Right. Wow. That's that's really crazy. My family has a similar ish story in that after the war, my grand, my father's mother's side ended up in Colombia. Exactly the same type of thing. They needed visas. That's where they got them. That's where they went. Um, they didn't stay there for very long. Um, they ended up, uh, I'm actually not sure exactly how long they were there. I should ask my father, but they, um, pretty soon after they got there or, or somewhat soon after they got there, um, it actually might've been longer now that I think about it. Cause she was 11 at Kristallnacht and she was like in her twenties or uh, like late twenties when she got married. So they might've been in Colombia for quite some time. Um, and then when, when she ended up, her father met my grandfather, I believe on a business trip in America and, uh, came back and said, we're going to Manhattan. And that's, <laughs> and that was that's, that's basically what happened. And it sounds like you did something similar that, you know, you, you were in high school, came back for a year to work with your father. And then like, what made you decide let's go to the U S because that's a, that's a huge decision to make. Was that something you always knew you would do? Absolutely not. And I didn't speak English. So like I spoke very little English. What happened was I wanted to go to law school and I, that's why I worked with my father who was an attorney and after I was working with him for almost a year, 
he took me took me to a conversation. My father always would say, let's go for a walk. I knew a heavy conversation was coming. <laughs> and my father said, I, I want to know, do you want to be a lawyer because you want to be a lawyer or do you want to be a lawyer to make me happy? Because what will make me happy is seeing you happy. And I want you to choose your path independent of what my path was. And I said to my father, you know what? I've never even considered doing anything else. So I don't know even what I would be good at. So my parents sent me to this. Um, she was a psychologist, but she I don't know if her, if her degree was in organizational psychology, but her work was to help people find their aptitudes, what they were good at to be in life. So there were seven meetings. They were fascinating. I loved meeting with her. Uh, and we did all kinds of games and conversations about moments in my life that meant a lot to me. And at the end, she told me three professions that she thought would be good for me. And all of them were in the art field. And I realized that I never saw art as a money-making Avenue. I always thought it was it would be my hobby. And she really opened up this window, this possibility of art being a money-making thing for me. So I decided to go to advertising. And in Brazil, there is an amazing school that is taught by professionals in the field. They're not teachers. They are the top creative directors of the biggest international firms like McCann Erickson, Young and Rubicon, and all of those. And we did an entire campaign from beginning to end. So you were able in six months to experience every section of an advertising agency. And I fell in love with advertising and marketing. And so here was my issue. I didn't do the tests that allow you to get into college in Brazil because I had gone to Israel and I had done the Israeli version of those tests, which are called Bagrut. They are the final tests. They are those grades you send into universities. Yeah, Bagrut's are kind of roughly equivalent to like regents in New York State, um, okay. the, those kinds of things. Yeah. And so I'm assuming there's a Brazilian equivalent as well that you just hadn't taken. Correct, because I didn't do high school there. So I told my parents, I'm not doing that because pretty much I would have to study four years of high school that I missed in Brazil. So I told my parents, well, I can go to Israel or I can go to America. The problem with Israel those days was that the best school, which is Betzalel at that time, didn't give a BA. My parents said, we're not sending you away from home to just do a course. We want you to get a degree. So we said, fine, so we'll go to America. Um, and we decided to go to Stern College in, as a combined degree with FIT. It was a shaped major. I ended up not finishing that because I transferred to FIT to get my degree from FIT after I got married. Uh, but it was terrifying because I was coming to a country. I was going through the same process that I went through when I was 14, that I went to a country that I didn't know anything about. I didn't know the language. I didn't know the culture. And here it is, I'm doing it all again at 19. Um, it was tough. You know, you're studying college classes in a language that you don't speak. How, so, how does one do that? 
Like, cause now I I only know you as English speaking, which is a good thing, cause I don't know no Spanish, but the um or Portuguese, which I know you have also. But like that, how how do you sit in a class? It must have I can't imagine sitting in a Spanish class and following what they're talking about. Did you just like figure it out? Did you know any English? Like, did you know English TV or something? Like, did you have something? I knew a little bit of English because for two summers I had gone to England to study English. So imagine I had two months in my life of learning a language. So that's the knowledge that I had. It was definitely not college level. It was, you know, I can get food. I can find my way around the city kind of a language. It was terrifying. I cried, but I was also extremely determined. I have a lot of grit. I'm very resilient. Um, And I push through and I'm naturally like that. And this is something that when I speak to my, my community, I always say I I am naturally that, but it's not that it's, that it's not easy. It's just that I want to succeed and a lot of studying. I mean, while people would just skim through review for a class, I had to prepare for each class. Like it was a test because otherwise I wouldn't be understanding what the teachers were saying. And and remember, this is before Google Translate. Right. So we, there were no way for me, there, there were no computers then. I mean, we were typing on word processors. Like people don't probably yeah. don't even know what that is. That's, <laughs> I, yeah. I just dated myself. Here. <laughs> I won't ask you what year it was. The... Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so when you graduated from FIT, your yeah. um your degree was in advertising and marketing yes my degree was in advertising design um and very soon after started doing graphics so i and i was doing advertising and and graphic design because some things advertising is very marketing based you're trying to sell something it's about headlines it's about the imagery that's going to convey something to sell uh, while graphics is how something is laid out, could be a booklet, could be packaging, could be so many things. So I was doing both from the get-go. I worked for other people and then I started my agency and I had an agency for about 25 years. I had major clients. I did work for all the pharmaceutical, all the big pharma, uh, big banks, uh, and I did pretty well <laughs> at, in those days. Yes, it was so- good. So most people do not know you as I think most people would be very surprised to hear that you spent, you know, that many years in in advertising and and with your own agency. And I know that I was certainly surprised here the first time that, you know, that we got to hang out and you told me about this. What changed? Because when like when you say that you were doing well, you were doing well, like you it was a very successful agency. And. And and what happened? What made you leave that all behind and and change the direction that you were going in? So uh, the joke part is that I had a midlife crisis, and instead of getting a red Corvette, I decided <laughs> to go into fashion. Uh, <laughs> this is terrible as far as midlife crises go. As as someone who works in fashion, I can underline yes. that for you. Yes. I, I thoroughly regret not getting that red Corvette. Next uh, next <laughs> midlife crisis. Yeah. And in those days, I could probably afford the director. <laughs> <laughs> Unlike now. Uh, what happened was that I did have a, I went through a major adversity in my life. So in two things happened at the very same time. 
At that time, my work was very much in ethics and compliance. So my love for law did end up merging with my advertising work. Because as I started doing work for pharmaceutical companies, they referred me to their compliance department and I was creating their entire compliance program. And I just knew that so well because I, I did for so many pharma companies that I could do it in my sleep. Now, the reason I say that was because I wasn't being challenged. And when I went through a major adversity in my life, I felt that I needed to be busy in order to numb my pain. And I said, if I'm going to be really, really busy with work, I won't be thinking about what's hurting me. But I, this work is not keeping me so busy, so challenged. My mind is always going to my problems. Maybe what I need to do is start something new. And I believe I'm a really an entrepreneur at heart. What I really love to do is to start and make something grow from nothing to something special. And that's the challenge at that time that I wanted to, to have in order to pretty much drug myself from thinking about my problems, which led me into this very um, focused healing journey because it, it was uh, in many ways a mistake because you should never know, you, should, you need to fill the fields. You need to go through and not around it. And I definitely was trying to hide from the pain. But thankfully, that road led me to say, no, this is not working out. I really need to understand and grow in resilience and grow in, um, in this ability to understand who I am and how I need to heal. Uh, so my, I started with handbag design. I don't know that you knew me then. But I was doing handbags and I was selling, but I knew I was not going to make a lot of money and grow the company really big because I would need millions of dollars to grow a brand because with handbags, it's a lot about the brand recognition more than the bag. It's all about status. So I said, no, I don't want to do that. I'm going to go and do clothing. So I did one dress. And I sold a hundred units just by walking in the street, wearing that dress and people asking me, where did you get it? And I said, I sell it. And here they would buy. And like that, I sold my first hundred dresses. But what happened was that I wasn't feeling fulfilled and my work in compliance did give me fulfillment. It didn't give me challenge, but gave me fulfillment because I love ethics. It is my higher highest goal values, right? So I left congruent with my values and I felt a lot of um, fulfillment from teaching other people those same values. But with clothing, I am not a fashionista. I do not consider myself a fashion designer at all. And I wasn't feeling anything from that business that I was creating. And I needed to create something that had a purpose and meaning. And that is when I was introduced to the Japanese art of Kintsugi. And, and I, if you want, we can talk a little bit about that. But when I saw the art and I consumed every material that teaches you know, what the methodology is, I said, oh my God, I want to be Kintsugi. And then, wow, why don't I do my fashion into a Kintsugi-inspired collection? and inspire people to heal. And, and that is when I really started my journey of 
finding myself again. In how long was it from when you started the line to when you intro- when you were introduced to Kintsugi and started integrating it in? Because I think this is a really important part of the story. I had uh, two seasons before Kintsugi. So about a year. Yeah, about a year. It was it was probably eight months because it was very soon after my second collection had been developed. And then once I was introduced to Kintsugi, within four months, I had my entire new collection developed. And I was on a fashion show with Alfredo Versace sitting next to me, holding my hand and telling me that he hasn't seen anything new in fashion for a very long time. Tell me about that. I did not know this little piece of the story. How did that happen? I met Alfredo Versace through a PR agency that connected us. Uh, He met me before um, that collection. He saw my my previous two collections. He loved the quality and the workmanship. And he was telling me, why are you selling yourself so short? Your quality is so good. This is luxury quality. You need to raise your prices. And we became friends and I would count on him for advice. He became like a mentor. And when I told him that I was doing a fashion show in in Florida, he said, give me the date. I'm going to come and support you. And he did. He came to my show uh, straight from the airport, sat next to me and told me, I hope you know that this show was you and that." There, I haven't seen anything new in the world of fashion for a very long time because people copy and, and there's always a little change here and there, but nothing really is so new, you know, it's just developing, it develops, develops, but he said, this is, this is new and I'm so proud of you. And it was such a, you know, it was such a, I don't know, a stamp of approval for somebody who had been in fashion his entire life. Alfredo Versace, just so you know, he was cousins with Johnny, and he started the original Versace men's fashion. Um, And then Johnny did the women's fashion, and they had a, a disagreement, and they went their own ways. But that's who he is. It's a big deal. It's a big deal. So... Tell me about Kintsugi. Tell to, for someone who's not familiar. Tell me what that what that is, and um and how that played into your life at the time. Yes. So Kintsugi in Japan is the art of mending broken pottery, and what the Japanese did was not mend it so you couldn't see the scars. What they did was to highlight with gold where it was broken. There is a very specific way to do Kintsugi. And it's with a, a lacquer that comes from a tree. It's called urushi. And it's a very strong lacquer. So what it creates is a very, very strong piece. If you throw that pottery on the floor after it's fixed, it won't break where it was fixed. It will break in new places, but it won't break in those places. And the gold makes it so valuable because they really, the Japanese, they use real gold. So a piece of pottery that was a few dollars after fixed could be hundreds or thousands, depending on how many breaks it had. The whole concept of Kintsugi was to teach people that we're not throwaways. We all break, but if we do the work and we mend it, we're more valuable, more unique and special than before. 
when I saw this video explaining Kintsugi and I was seeing the art, my first reaction was, I want to be Kintsugi. I wanted so badly to heal, but I wanted to heal in that way. And in that way is a way where I can inspire others because you can mend pottery without showing the scars, hiding the scars. That's not what I wanted to do. I, I, I'm totally fine being this flawed human and letting people see my flaws if I can inspire other people to mend and become this unique being unashamed of, of their past. Uh, so I said right away when I saw that video, I want to be Kintsugi. How about my collection eh, becomes this? You know, how about we wear Kintsugi so we can embody it, so we can feel less, you know, uh, embarrassed and ashamed for whom, from whom we are, and also to inspire other people. So if somebody sees me as a Kintsugi person, they will feel the same way, wanting to do the work to mend and being an inspiration to others. Do you ever, this is a strange question that just uh, popped into my head. You, the Kintsugi motif, those like gold lines and gold brushes and things like that is something that you've been using in your collection for quite some time. Do you ever get bored of it? Like, do you ever want to be like, I just want to make something tie-dye and rainbow? Like, is there ever a time when you, when you, like, when you regret tying yourself so closely to this concept that has such a strong visual motif that you are always following? So this is such an interesting and excellent, excellent question. There are many sides of this. My personal purpose side, no, I don't regret it because I am not a fashion designer. I'm a Sherpa. My, my, my job is to take the women from point A of brokenness to point Z, whatever letter you want. Sherpa, uh, Sherpa is officially the name of this podcast episode. That's fantastic. That's such a good way to describe it. But that's what I am. So if that is what I am, how can I not be tied to Kintsugi in, in fashion? Financially, it is very difficult because the stores had enough, right? They right. had it. They have the same shoppers. Their shoppers have it. The quality is so good that doesn't get destroyed so easily. It's not Forever 21 that after a few washes, you need to get a new one. Mm -hmm. So they're not, actually stores told me that. They told me to lower the quality so people will come back and buy more of it. <sighs> I just, you know, I'm still incongruent with my ethics and compliance background that I don't do that. But um, so there, there's two sides of it. And because there is the, the financial side, um, you know, my husband is, uh, is had two strokes, so he no longer works. So the entire job of providing for my family is on my shoulders. So I, I do have some pieces that are not Kintsugi. And actually for next collection, I'm going to have a whole collection that's not Kintsugi. Uh, but that's only because I need to make a living, but I will always have kintsugi and I will always my passion will always be kintsugi and when some people tell me why do you keep doing it I ask them tell me something do you ask Louis Vuitton why they use the LV in everything they do no right you want the LV so maybe one day this kintsugi print is going to be the same thing as an LV meaning people are going to be looking for more and more because 
not only the message is so meaningful, but the quality and the way we produce the ethics that we, you know, employ in our business is something that's going to be cherished. I hope that there's going to be a day that people actually care about the manufacturing. It wouldn't side. surprise me if that happened because I can say, you know, having seen your stuff up close, the quality is gorgeous and the print itself is a really nice print. Um, it's, it is a really gorgeous print, but it's also very distinctive, which is why I see how like you run into that problem of people feeling yeah. like they've had it already or they've seen it already. Yes, but the interesting part is the people that are buying for the look they will buy one or two and that's it. But the people that are buying for the message, I have people that have more dresses than I do. Mm -hmm. They buy everything, you know, they buy everything that comes out. So it really depends on who the shopper is. The day that will come that I'm going to start advertising to the direct to consumer, I may have an easier time because I'm going to be reaching a broader uh, market right now, depending on the month, I have 50 to 75% return of customers that buy from me. So people that bought once are buying again and again and again. So it's a high return on the customer. But it's the ideally is to have a very broad market that right. are going to be used to it. So maybe right. maybe in the right. meaning you found your people and those people really like it. But if you but in order to expand you need to have more people. Exactly. Oh the tri the trials and tribulations to be a business owner. That's like, I don't think I've ever related to something a guest said more. Um, I'm, you mentioned your husband's strokes. Um, and if, if, you're, if you're comfortable, I'd, I'd like to talk about that uh, for a moment. Um, your husband, uh, I think it was about two years ago now, somewhere in that range? His first one was three years ago. What happened? How, like, and tell, tell me the story. So my husband had a stroke in the middle of the night. And unfortunately, people feel that uh, strokes is one thing, right? You you can't walk, your hands curl, like you lose the ability from one side. Uh, but strokes, depending on, on the type of the stroke and where it affected in the brain, can show itself very, very differently. So we had no idea he had had a stroke, but he was acting very weird. He was asking me, where do we live? What's the name of the town? He just couldn't remember stuff that it was like, what? what are you asking me? I asked him, can we go to the doctor? He refused. I called the doctor anyway. The doctor said um, he needs to come because I'm leaving town. So if he's not better by tomorrow morning, bring him. Uh, the next morning, he woke up in the morning. I asked him a few questions. He couldn't remember anything. Uh, and we went to the doctor. He's blood pressure was very high. A, the doctor did not send him to the hospital. He was put on, on blood pressure medication, which did not reduce the blood pressure at all. Saturday night, I took him for a walk around our street and I asked him who lives here, who lives here. Those are neighbors that we had for 20 years. He couldn't remember anybody's name. It's not that he didn't remember. He gave me different names and he was sure those were their names. Uh, so I took him to the hospital, and when I described in the entrance what he the symptoms, immediately he was rushed in, and on the loudspeaker I heard potential uh, stroke patient, and I was shocked. Um, he was immediately taken to a CT scan. It showed that he had had recently a stroke. Also showed that he had a terrible diabetes that we never knew and very high blood pressure. Now. Um, 
it was shocking. We were, you know, he was put in the hospital. It was, uh, it was the new year. It was Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish new year. Uh, we were there for four days. And no matter what medication he was given, it, he was not reacting positive. So they kept giving him more medication and he was getting sicker to the point that I told that nobody in the hospital is allowed to touch him. And that if anybody does, I'll walk out. Um, we ended up leaving the hospital and kind of managing, going to doctors directly, trying to figure out what was going on. Why are we giving him medications for diabetes and, and high blood pressure, but he wasn't getting better. A year later, he had a second stroke after he collapsed with terrible anemia. His hemoglobin was six, which is close to dead. And while he was at a hospital, trying, doctors were trying to figure out why he was so anemic. They thought he was losing blood. And they did a test that showed that he had a tumor in his adrenal gland. It is an extremely rare tumor called pheochromocytoma, very rare. And this tumor causes diabetes, high blood pressure, panic attacks, which he had had for seven years that no medication could help him. And no matter what medication you give, this tumor, it, it makes the adrenal gland produce more hormones that causes whatever illness that he, the person displays. So the more medication you give, the sicker the patient gets, but without medication, the, the patient is not getting better because what's causing it is this tumor. We pulled him from all these local hospitals and took him to the Cleveland Clinic uh, with the help of Refua Hotline, which is a hotline in Muncie that helps you find the top doctors in specific fields. They helped us find a doctor that knew how to do this surgery, which is a very, very dangerous surgery. Um, lots of doctors in it, lots of different practitioners in different areas. Uh, and thank God that they, they removed the gland, they removed the tumor. Um, it is, it's interesting. It is a tumor that you call it a, a benign tumor, meaning it's there's it doesn't doesn't have cancerous cells. At the same time, it is a malignant tumor because it is a tumor that kills you. It just doesn't kill you with the bad cells. It kills you causing diabetes, blood, high blood pressure, and usually strokes or heart attacks. Um, and that's it. So now it is the recovery from all of this. It's it's managing with, this, with the consequences of those strokes. It lost memory, it lost vision, cognition, and yeah different life what was the span of time from that second stroke until the surgery and and until he started improving a little bit but still you know we should say still nowhere near where he was you know before all this happened it was about six months what happened was we found a doctor right away but because it's so rare this tumor they don't take their word of a different hospital so they send him to a battery of tests for them to believe that really he had FIO. Uh, people that had FIO, when you go to a doctor and the doctor says, you have FIO? Oh my gosh, this is so cool. That's <sighs> the, because it's so rare for them. 
and they want to see a real life patient that has it. So that's the reaction. So we had to do all the tests again. Uh, yeah. So we took six months until we managed to, to schedule this surgery. You never want to be the interesting patient. No, you don't. You really yeah. don't. That yeah. sucks. I'm yeah. sorry. The when all of this happened, um, and you know, and when you were dealing with that, and you're, and you're still dealing with the consequences um, of that. You know, two strokes is a big deal. He's still limited, like you said, he can't work. What? How did you cope with this huge change? Not only in, not only like obviously in your marriage and in your relationship with your husband, because he's not really the same person anymore, but also in what that means for you financially and what that means for you know, for your business and your line, your, your, this implodes something like this implodes your entire life. How, how do you handle something like that? So first of all, I am strong. I'm naturally strong. So I, I, I say that not to gloat, but I say that because I, I don't want ever people to look at something, right? They look at you and they say, oh my God, how are you managing? You know, you're so, no, I'm not so unbelievable. I, I was born with strength. I had to refine this strength. I had to grow in this strength, but I was born naturally strong, which is not always good. I think that strong people sometimes really want to feel weak and vulnerable and be taken care of. Sometimes it's exhausting to be the strong one. So I'm not, I don't say that only with as a good thing, but I want to say that uh, because a lot of people go through the same thing that I go through and it's a lot harder for them and it, they are not to be blamed, okay? Uh, I worked for years in my resilience. This My whole journey to work in my resilience was 10 years that I, I've been in pain for other issues that I've had in my life. And I worked very hard and I devote a tremendous amount of time in growing in resilience. And that's why I tell the people that the gift that you can give yourself in growing in resilience, it is the most amazing gift because life will always bring you to your knees at some point or another. And if you're stronger, you will be able to bounce back faster and thankfully besides being born strong i worked very hard on getting stronger uh as far as um i'm i'm very as far as like the money and 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 dealing with all the changes i think i have a lot of faith and i think that faith is what sustains me because when it comes to money i really believe that we all get what we're supposed to get to descent. So if I have less right now, it's because I'm supposed to have less right now. If it's supposed to be harder to get the less than I had that I have, then that's what I'm supposed to go through. And I don't take it personally. I don't think that it's it, it, I don't think it's happening to me. I think it's happening for me. And because I live with that belief so strongly, I'm able to also not resent it so much. Uh, a hard part was the changes in my husband's personality. You, you, we're soulmates. I mean, there's no question that we we probably were together in previous lives. So just so you know, and the people know. I met him and I proposed to him on our third date and we were engaged four days later 
and we're married for 32 years. So, and we're very close and we always work together and we were always together. So dealing with those changes was very hard because I missed him. I missed that person that I proposed to. He's different. And I told myself I have two choices. I can resent, I can be upset, I can be grieving, or I can learn to love this person uh, and see the beauties that there is in who he became, who the new person that he is. And because I really believe that things happen for me and not to me, I believe that God is loving. I think he loves me a lot and with reason, because I think I'm great. And and I don't say that, in a, and I really don't say that in a, a ridiculous, uh, pompous way. I My goal is I hope that all people feel the same way because we should, because we're not one in a million. We are one of a kind. We're each one of us is one of a kind. We're a gift. I mean, we were made so beautifully, so specifically, so incredibly. I see this miracle. And when people put themselves down, I say, you don't even realize you're putting God down because God made you. And, you know, you're putting down his art, his his unique construction of who you are. So I, I always feel, you know, if I went through this, if I'm going through this, is because this was created for me and I need to figure out and find the blessings within it. And that doesn't mean that sometimes I get sad and sometimes I long for that person. It doesn't mean any of that. It just means that after I shed a few tears, I can wipe my face and say, okay, what's next? You know? Right. Do you think that like I was going to ask how you get to like that level of whether you want to call it faith or belief or or self assurance or or anything like that. You know, you you started mentioning faith in in relation to financial troubles, and I one hundred percent, I not even that I agree with you. I know that however much money I have right now is exactly how much I'm supposed to have, and the reason why I know that is because I cannot. I've lost count of the number of times when I was so close to not being able to cover, you know, a credit card bill or so close to wondering, oh, shoot, how am I going to pay for this fabric that, you know, that I need to do this production run, especially in the very beginning of the business that would happen like every week, there would be something else, you know, coming up that I would wonder, you know, is this business going to survive? And is this something that I can come through? And then the money would always show show up sometimes in the strangest ways, like clients who I, who were stringing me along for months, finally decided to give their deposit or, you know, stores that at the time when I was doing wholesale that like I had been chasing for months for thousands of dollars would, you know, one day randomly without me calling, just like I would just see the, they, they sent the quick pay, you know, things like that. And in a way, I feel like I acquired that understanding through hardships you know, through not having enough and then having it show up in exactly the right way at exactly the right time. Do you think that there's a way to build that, whether you want to call it faith or recognition or whatever, in without the hard stuff? Like, how can we, how, you know, when life is good, how can we cultivate that understanding? I don't think we can. I think when everything is good, we start taking it for granted. And I think that adversity comes for the growth. Um, one, I interviewed somebody amazing. Um, anybody wants to listen to Eliza Bulow. Eliza Bulow is a, 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 
she's uh, she converted to Judaism. Um, she she's a uh, very um, how do I say, true in her faith, like very strong in her faith, and she has had a tremendous amount of adversities, a tremendous amount. A son who committed suicide, um, two grandchildren who passed away, major things happened to her life. And I interviewed about her about it. And when I, uh, one of the questions that I asked her was, I said, Eliza, people say that God gives you what you can handle. But I don't think so, because when I'm in my pain, I can't handle it. Nobody can tell me, oh, if you got it, got you can handle it. I cannot handle. So how, how do you explain that to me? And she told me, Miriam, you are 100% right. You can't handle. Because the hardship, the pain that we go through in life is always a little bit outside what we can handle. And then we do the work so we can handle. That work is our growth. Adversity comes to encourage us that if we do the work, we will grow. And we are in this world to grow. We're here to become better, right? To 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 fix our souls to a point of, of uh, more holiness and to achieve our potential. But before adversity, you, you don't have any, there's no motivation for you to do this constant work when everything is good. It is the pain, it is the, the, the adversity that brings the person to do the work to achieve this faith, this growth, this healing, this whatever you call it. Uh, but it is adversity. I, I really believe so. And that's why I always say that usually your purpose is hidden in your pain. And the more work that you do within feeling the pain and accepting what's going on through you, that's when you realize what you're meant to be doing. And then you achieve resilience and growth. It's amazing. I've seen work. Um, I don't know if you know, but I also coach people and mm -hmm. I've interviewed people for three, four years now that went through terrible adversities, but they are thrivers. And these people are the real heroes. And if we open our minds, we'll see. And by the way, you touched on something that I, I love it. Those are, are like little miracles that God sprinkles for, for us when you see the, the money being paid. I've see, I see that happen all the time. I had that happen a couple of weeks ago in a major way in my life. And I, I always smile and I say, thank you, you know, thank you, God, uh, for this gift, because we don't always see, but our, our lives is sprinkled with miracles all day long. And it's up to us to notice them. Uh, I was going to, on Passover, I was living with my family. We went to Ocala and we, we left and we were a few minutes late. And then during the way, there was a major, a fatal car accident, and we were seven cars behind. Yeah. And I had an opportunity to tell my daughter, do you see how blessed we are? You know, because if we would have been on time, we have been closer to the accident. Maybe we would have been part of this multi-car accident. And the fact that we're here and we were four hours with the car parked while they cleared the whole area, we have four hours to thank God that we weren't a few cars ahead of where we were. And it's a choice because you can choose to be upset. 
your car is running out of gas, you can't keep the AC on, it's really hot. There are many, uh, well, how am I going to get my food that's being delivered to Orlando? I was supposed to start cooking, right? There, there's a million and one reasons why this is a terrible thing. And there's a reason why this is a gift. And it's all about the perspective. And you are able to pay attention to a different perspective when you have overcome from adversity before and you see, you start seeing that what seemed so bad was indeed good. It was painful, but it was good. And that's something that people really don't connect. People say, this is so hard, it's terrible. Not everything that it's hard and painful is terrible. Most mm. things that are hard and painful, they're good for us, but they're they're hard. Right. That's it. When, when Not our, everything uh, that's hard and painful is terrible. Put it on a t-shirt. That's that's a that's a very interesting distinction to to pull out that, you know, um uh something that my mom will say a lot is that good things can also be hard. You know, yes. just good things can also be hard. Something can be amazing and also just be really difficult. And this is kind of the opposite side of that coin. Not yeah. everything that's hard is 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 awful, you know, is yeah. terrible. Yeah. On, on this on this note of miracles, I one of my favorite Jewish thoughts occurred to me now, and I feel like you'll appreciate it. So I'm going to share with you. You know, there's this debate between bitachon and hishtadlus, between faith and effort. A person of faith could say, if God wants something to happen, it'll happen. So I will be on my couch eating potato chips, watching TV. God shower your blessings down upon me. I am ready. Now, obviously, any thinking, logical person knows that that's not how things happen. But, you know, this this question of of faith and effort is something that, like, has been debated in Jewish thought ad nauseum, I'm sure, for like literally thousands of years. And it's something that really speaks to me, this whole debate as a whole, because, I mean, you know this about me. Um, I am I'm a worker. I am someone I am I am a hustler. I am someone who makes things happen. Probably not probably, definitely in certain circumstances to an unhealthy extent. And there have definitely been times when I have literally run myself ragged trying to make things happen. And I heard once, and I wish I could remember where it was from or who said it or whatever, but I presume it was a wise man with a beard who said that the difference between the, the, this framing of faith and work is as follows. God can do miracles. God does do miracles every day. The fact that we are all alive and breathing is a miracle. Like you said, in a car accident, it could all be gone. You know, with a stroke, it could all be gone. With getting struck by lightning or eaten by a shark, it could all be gone from one second to the next. And God can do miracles and does do miracles every day. But it's not really his style. He's more of a low, like a low-key laid-back kind of guy. And he can do miracles, but he just doesn't prefer it. You know, he prefers to be kind of in the background, much, you know, more private, more not super flashy. So yes, if God wants something to happen, it will happen. But don't make him use up a miracle for something dumb that you could have worked for. And in the and in and in the opposite way, don't think that you're gonna work your way out of something 
that God doesn't want to happen, because if he needs to, he'll make a miracle to make it not happen. You know, things don't happen in the strangest of ways. But to, to think about it in that way of, yes, if this if God wants this thing to happen, it will happen. You know, if he wants this company to be successful, if he wants this person to be well, those things will happen. But don't make him pull out the miracles for no reason. And that, I think, ties in a lot to what you're saying as well. Yes, and I think also to add to that is that it's a test in itself. It's very easy to trust in God completely when miracles are happening all around, like clear miracles. Right. But God created the world, so we, there is like a nature, there is a way that things run, right? And the miracles are hidden. And mir hidden miracles happen to us every day. But it requires us to believe in him, to see and recognize those miracles as miracles and not just with co as coincidences. It's our right. choice to see that. So it is a test in our faith. When, when somebody sends you that check that you need, do you see the hand of God or do you see a coincidence that just happens? Right. And I think that when we train ourselves to see those wonderful little sprinkle, you know, marvelous things that happen to us as miracles, the more you see them, the more, the more, the more they will happen to you because now you have a whole conversation. You have a whole connection with God. And I, I created that in my relationship with God. I really did. I had a whole story that I lost a pair of glasses that my husband gave me. And it was a gift that he gave me passed after his stroke. And he lost that sensitivity of buying gifts or doing nice things. So when he gave me that pair of sunglasses, I was so excited. And he gave it to me because he was replacing two that I had lost. And they were expensive. And I told him, don't buy another one. I want to buy a cheap one for $15 at TJ Maxx. Don't spend $200 on a pair of glasses. He buys me the new ones. The first time I use it, I go to the tile store, I put it on my shirt, I bend down at some point and I lost the glasses. And I realized I went back and I couldn't find the glasses. And my whole way home, I talked to God. And I said to him, I think you exaggerated. I think it's too much. I've had so much loss. So many, so many losses in so many areas, you didn't have to take the glasses too. And I came back home and I said to myself, Miriam, you were upset because you lost a pair of glasses. How silly, there are people dying from cancer right now, plugged to chemotherapy and you're crying for sunglasses. And then I said, Kintsugi. And in Kintsugi, you grieve. You allow yourself to grieve for your loss. It doesn't matter which loss it is. And then after you grieve, you put yourself together. So I said, I'm going to allow myself a little bit of a cry. I cried. And then I said, what am I going to do about it? I wrote an email to the customer service of that company. And I said, this is a long shot. You have no obligation to help me. I'm a client of yours since 2012. And I just lost my third pair of glasses. I cannot afford to buy another one. And they gifted me one for free. And when they gifted me one for free, I could, it was a moment that I could have said, oh, I had such a great idea or uh, the company is so amazing or God listened to my conversation with him and he found a way in the real world 
without this obvious, like a, a, a Maui Jim appearing on the, my front, uh, you know. The, the glasses the, did not float down from heaven, though that would have been no. much more dramatic. Exactly. But I did something about it and I gave God the opportunity to answer me. And he said, you know what? You're right. And you you had enough loss. You don't need to lose the glasses. And now and now I have the glasses and got, got it for free. They shipped it for free. And every time that I put on these glasses, those are godly glasses. You know, it's it, the first ones they came from my husband. The second ones they came from God. It's a choice. And I think that when you go through adversity and you choose to see as things happening for you, then everything you're going to try to look at that perspective. You first cry, you first mourn, you you have the right to feel the feels, and then you try to look for a different perspective so you can overcome it and grow from it and become somebody better than before. That is such a lovely place to end on. Mary, if somebody wants to learn more about you, where can they go? They can... Uh, email me at sales at mikafashion.com the website is Mika Fashion. they can also find me on facebook at the heal with gold group where we have amazing video um, interviews that's all free um yeah they can on instagram they can come to Mika fashion also i'm gonna link all of that in the show notes so that it's super easy to find last thing i want to ask you mary what does it mean to you to make an impact it's giving meaning and purpose to my pain. If I go through something hard and can impact somebody in a positive way, then I feel like there was a good reason for me to go through my adversity and it just makes it less painful. So it makes it okay. I can handle, I can handle anything if my pain can bring somebody else some light. I love that. Thank you so much for coming on today, Mary. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about Mary and Mika Fashion, her links are in the show notes. On last week's episode, I spoke with Nahama Wasserman about her nine-year journey to attempt to divorce her husband, who's refusing to grant her again. Listen to her wherever you're hearing this one. The Be Impactful Podcast is a project of Impact Fashion, the clothing line I created because I believe that we are all deserving of the beautiful things life has to offer. See my modest designs that are currently in stock in sizes 2 through 24 and coming up to size 28 very soon by going to impactfashionnyc.com. Access all of that by swiping up on the cover art. There are currently 18 people listed by Ulrich Agunot as a recalcitrant party. View their names, photos, locations, and details of their cases by visiting getorg slash recalcitrant-parties. The episode art was designed by Michelle Moses. Original music composed by Nisan Fetman. This episode was produced and hosted by me, Rifki Itzwitz. Catch me on all the socials at impact.fashion.myc. Here's to making an impact together.